0: The text this morning is from Matthew 5, 7. We are continuing our study of the Beatitudes as part of our overall study of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are the expressions of the kingdom that Jesus expects will be manifest in the lives of all of those who are his followers. They are also the promises of God as the end result of those who have committed themselves to him in whom he has begun a work and promises to see it through to the end. As has been our pattern, our reading will begin in verse 1, and then after verse 2, we'll skip down to uh, verse 7. This morning, we'll not only consider this particular passage, but a couple of other passages that are well-known that are related and help us to understand the fullness of what Jesus is speaking to us in these words. But Now, let us come to the word of God and hear his word. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and skipping down to verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, as we come this morning, we pray that you would be at work within us, opening our minds and our hearts as well. That what we hear from you and learn from you, that would be also shaping within us and expressed outside through our behavior. May your word not come back empty, but be powerful for encouragement, for breaking and renewing, and for the establishing, making us more like Christ. This is our desire, and we come to you with this prayer on the foundation of your promise, the promise of your covenant knowing that your word never comes empty. To you all praise, not only from our lips, but from lives that are lived out in obedience. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. William Wallace is a name that's familiar to most of you. You recognize it from the movie Braveheart. William Wallace was a man who, if you follow the storyline, desired to live in peace. He moved back to his home village And even when some of the neighbors who were in revolt against the tyrannical English crown asked him to join in the fight, he said he wanted to live at peace as long as it was possible. And for him it was possible until a bad law that had been enacted, a hideous law, one that allowed the gentry to have access to the wives of the men who were under their authority. Wallace married his wife in secret. When it was found out, the gentry killed her which set him off on a rampage, first in revenge against the, the, the gentry, the, the lord who had, had, who had killed her, and then ultimately escalating against the very king, who years before had killed both his father and his brother, leaving him as an orphan. And so he went on a quest. Some of you are familiar with the film or the book A Time to Kill from John Grisham, in that the story revolves around a character, Carl Lee Haley, Man who was set off by the fact that two drunken and pathetic rednecks abused and then left his daughter, a nine year old daughter, for dead. Hearing that these two might get off and actually be set free after such a crime, he took matters into his own hands and took a rifle into the courthouse where he shot down both of the men who had raped and thought they had killed his daughter. And, of course, there's always everyone's favorite, Anigo Montoya, from Princess Bride, who in his childhood had lost his father, which led him to a lifelong quest, and at the end of the movie, come to the culmination and said, Hello, my name is Anigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. There's something in that and actually in all of these stories that it resonates with us. And we watch the stories and we find ourselves identifying with these characters, even cheering for them in their quest to take vengeance on those who have hurt them. There's something within us that just causes us to do that. Part of it may be justice. We know that when people perpetrate such heinous things, they should not be able to get off scot-free. Knowing that even though God judges in the ultimate life and the ultimately in life, that even in this life they shouldn't be able to go without punishment for uh, just the, the pain and the, the, uh, that they have caused uh, for people in their lives. At the same time, it probably also reveals something to us that there is a sense not just of justice but there is a sense of vengeance that we identify with as well. That we have this natural instinct to want to take revenge upon those people who hurt us or who hurt the people that we love. And so when we see it acted out in whether in film or characters or even in incidents that we read about in real life, we tend to identify with some of those characters and cheer and embrace the vengeance that they are taking out. We've even created cliches that validate that reality of our lives, that part of us. Vengeance is sweet. Another one that says vengeance is a dish best served cold. That one doesn't even tell us just what it's gonna taste like, it tells us how to do it, you know, how to prepare that up to vengeance, up, uh, to serve it up cold. And while thinking about this and being aware and to recognize that within us we have this sense of, of justice that sometimes expresses itself in vengeance and perhaps it's something that we've been conscious of, perhaps it's a, a fresh awareness, but regardless, of whether it's something we know of ourselves or we think just may be possible or somewhat true of ourselves, that natural instinct that I believe all of us tend to share stands in stark contrast with the beatitude that we're considering this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as I read this and as I've considered this passage all week, I recognize that with this beatitude in particular, I I, I think I'm inclined to believe that at the same time, this is the most simple and the most difficult of the Beatitudes for us to embrace. It's the most simple because it is the one that gives us a clear direction of something that we are to do. Merciful, we are to therefore demonstrate mercy. We are to, to do something. Most of the other ones are kind of difficult for us to know how we do it, but we know that if we go and we show mercy to other people, then we're characterized as merciful, and so it gives us something to do. It's the simplest in that way, and yet it's also the most complex for a number of reasons because mercy is not as simple as sometimes we boil it down to be, and then in addition to that, it's not something that we naturally gravitate to for whatever our reasons, But Jesus lays this out for us this morning, and he says, blessed are the merciful, and we we deal with that knowing that even if it's not our natural instinct, even if it's something that causes us uh, to feel a little bit uncomfortable, we know that what Jesus teaches us is the better way. But to understand what Jesus is saying, we want to break it down in in a couple of ways. I think in the simplest way we express it is we need to understand this at at fundamental root. Mercy is simply compassion in action. Now, throughout the New Testament, the word mercy and compassion are used almost synonymously and sometimes interchangeably. And one of the best examples of that we find in a well-known story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of you probably don't need to turn there with me, uh, but if you want to, it's in Luke chapter 10. But rather than reading the whole thing, I'm just going to just summarize it quickly and then kind of allude to a, uh, to a couple of verses here. But most of you understand and, and know the story whether you are a Bible scholar or somebody who has just attended a vi- vacation Bible school when you were five years old and this is the second time you've been in church since you were five years old. We know the story. A man who was going from business is walking along the road. A Jewish man was walking along the road and thieves came out and they beat him and they robbed him and they left him on the side of the road for dead. People walked by, religious leaders, and they looked at him and they ignored him and went on their way for their own reasons, their justifiable reasons in one part because uh, this man was unclean. He certainly was inconvenienced. It would have been difficult. They had pressing matters. Somebody else was more qualified and more capable of helping, but they went on their way till finally a third man came, a man who was a Samaritan, a man of a different ethnicity, not only of a different ethnicity, but an ethnicity that was at war with the, the Jews, of which this man lying on the side of the road was. Uh, an ethnicity that was, uh, the Samaritans considered beneath, not only beneath the Jews, but beneath contempt. Because they were considered unclean. They were considered unholy. They were just considered uh, uh, if they, uh, as, as lesser beings, almost barely human. And yet it was the Samaritan who stopped and who tended to the man, and dressed his wounds, picked him up, carried him someplace, tended to him there, and then having to go on with his business, told the people where he had left him, continue to take care of him, and any cost that you incur in doing so, I will make sure that it is paid back to you. And so this man, not only got his hands on, but also through the giving of his own resources, made sure that mercy was extended to this man. And as Jesus tells the story, one of the things that is important for us to, to recognize is this, is as Jesus is, is telling, talking with the, the man who prompted the question, his description of the Samaritan, which we find in verse 33 says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. And then as he finishes the story, Jesus says in a question, trying to drive his point home, We see in verse 36, Jesus asked this question, which of these three, the three men that passed by, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man that he was speaking with said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So if you see the point is that what I'm saying is that we need to understand when Jesus said blessed are the merciful, to understand mercy, we need to understand that mercy is compassion in action and that compassion and mercy go together and are almost synonymous. And Jesus is demonstrating that through the words he's using here because he said of the characteristic of the Samaritan, he has compassion. That's what compelled him to stop and to tend. But when he asked the question to try to drive the point home, the man responding said, used the word, oh, the one who had mercy. And Jesus didn't correct him. Didn't say there's a semantic difference. He acknowledged and says, go and do likewise. The words are related and interconnected and, in some sense, synonymous in in the Scripture. And so we need to recognize that mercy is compassion in action, meaning that in order to be merciful, you must be able to feel what somebody else is feeling. That's what the word compassion literally means. I mean, you break the word down. The com means with. And passion is the feelings, and so it's the feeling the pain of somebody else, feeling what they are feeling. Even Webster picks this up as he defines that. He defines it in this way, that compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. And Webster's definition is perfect not only for Jesus's illustration and what he's calling to us in the Beatitude, because if... Mercy is compassion in action. It is not enough to simply have compassion to feel somebody else's pain, to symbolically identify with them, to create protest groups and other symbolic gestures that actually don't alleviate the difficulty that that they have. Doing those things makes us feel better but it is not biblically merciful. Those who have mercy must feel what somebody else is feeling and they must act on that in a way that alleviates or addresses the real problem the person has. At the same time, it reminds us that our actions that we do that sometimes make us feel better because we are helping other people, but we are not engaged and not involved. If mercy is compassion in action, we are not actually merciful if we are not feeling what somebody else is doing. Recognizing there's a problem contributing to something while maybe noble, it's not what we're being called to. We are being called as Christ is for us to be compassionate which expresses itself through actions of mercy. Mercy is compassion that is an action. But we also need to recognize and the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us something else that's important for us to understand. If we're to understand what Jesus means by blessed are the merciful. And we need to understand that not only is mercy, compassion and action, but mercy is multi-dimensional. I'm not really sure how many dimensions. I was thinking about this week and I came with two. I was going to call it dual dimensions, but then I realized I don't know everything, so I'll leave it open-ended. But I'm gonna touch on two dimensions because they themselves are quite holistic. We need to recognize that mercy, to be merciful, it has two different dimensions that we recognize within life itself. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we do see this particularly in the first one, which I'll call situational mercy. Situational mercy is is the tangible relief of somebody's temporal need. In other words, it's a tangible relief of whatever need somebody has at any given time. It's what the good samaritan was doing somebody had a need as he was lying on the side of the road he needed to be tended to he needed his wounds healed he needed an opportunity to rest he needed the opportunity to recuperate and that was the need that was addressed and accomplished he was dealing with this man's circumstance this is not the way that he lived this is his circumstance at the time and so mercy in that dimension of situational simply seeks to bring tangible relief. Now, again, not symbolic and not only just spiritual, but tangible relief to somebody who has a need. And even in this expression, it helps us deepen our understanding of the way God works and the way that his word speaks to us. Because through that very expression, we see illustrated to us the difference between grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are two words that are often used interchangeably. Perhaps understandably because they are certainly related. But they are different and they are distinct. They are not synonymous. Grace addresses our spiritual condition. In other words, grace addresses our guilt and our undeservedness by God pardoning us, forgiving us, and restoring us into relationship with himself. But mercy addresses our pitiful condition. Not our spiritual condition itself, but the, the circumstances, our tangible, our environment that we have plunged ourselves into because of our sin. And this distinction is important because it creates a reminder for us to understand that God is not only concerned with the spiritual dynamic of our life, certainly he is concerned, but God is concerned with the physical aspect of our lives in all aspects, all physical dimension of our life in all aspects. And so God gives to grace to those who he calls to himself and reconciles to us. And then God also is concerned with our tangible, the things that go on in our lives. And we're told that God also, through his grace, sheds his mercy on even those who don't belong to him because he provides for all who are created after his own image. And so we need to recognize that the whole scope of God's redemption, God's concern, God's care, is both our spiritual and our physical uh, dimension. And therefore, we are called, when Jesus is saying to be merciful, it means that we are concerned about the physical life of the people who are around us. And that we are engaging and seeking to bring need. And to be negligent of meeting the tangible needs of our neighbors and the nations is as much of a neglect of God's call on our lives as if we were to go about that but have no concern for evangelism. The scripture is quite clear. What good is it if a man had everything and then forfeits his own soul because they didn't have grace, because they didn't deal with the spiritual aspect. And yet God is concerned not only we just get them saved, but then we also care for the whole man in tangible ways. That's the circumstantial or the situational dimension that mercy is to be expressed. It's a hands-on and the giving of our resources in order to alleviate whatever condition that people have. But there is also another dimension and it is the relational dimension. And mercy in the relational dimension is expressed through forgiveness which is related to the grace. The tax collector standing on a street corner, an opposite street corner of the religious person, the religious person giving God a list of all of his attributes as if God should be impressed. But the tax collector simply prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. At that point he's not asking for provisions for his need, he's asking for the relational dimension with God to be rectified through the extension of forgiveness for his sin, extending of grace. But it also tells us the relationship aspect that we are to be extending to those people who are around us. We need to be very clear. There is no greater expression of mercy in the relational sense than to extend forgiveness to the guilty, to people who have offended us. But in order to do that, it requires a humble recognition of a truth that we profess, but it's difficult for us to truly believe. To extend forgiveness to somebody requires that we recognize that whatever somebody has done to us is as nothing as compared to what we do to God. That whatever sin, however they've sinned against you, it compares as nothing to how we sin against God and how great of an offense that is. And that's difficult for us to to concede. Difficult for us to grasp. Because many who are here have been sinned against in horrible ways. People have hurt you in a, a real way. And while you acknowledge that you aren't perfect, that, yeah, you are a sinner, you would never do the things that they have done. And God is stronger than you. So how can our offenses against God be greater than somebody's offense against us? The only way for us to understand that is to recognize that the measure of the offense is not based on the action itself but against the person to whom it is perpetrated and while all of you carry a tremendous value having been created after the image of God you are created and God the Creator is holy and is perfect and is worthy of all adoration and worship And anything less than that is an offense against him, and it tarnishes him far more than anything anybody can do to us. To illustrate this, Jesus tells another parable that we're familiar with. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant that you find in Matthew chapter 18. Again, you're familiar with this story, and so I'll summarize before we look into some of the details situation for this is Jesus talking on this very subject of forgiveness and Peter clearly is listening but also processing his upbringing and his own inclination asks the question how often should I forgive my brother or my neighbor who has they sinned against me and then showing his upbringing seven times I mean, Peter knew that it's not three strikes and you're out. And some of that is his understanding of the Old Testament and that there is a grace that goes beyond what we would naturally be inclined to extend. Seven times is a, is a biblically perfect number. And so Peter is showing biblical knowledge, uh, realizing this, this, the, uh, the, the standard is higher than we might think, and is being incredibly gracious with this. To which, as most of you know, Jesus responded, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, or 77 times. I always find it interesting that we get caught up in that disparity between 77 and 70 times seven. Now, I mean, there's a significant number, 77 versus 490. i mean, not a mathematician, but that sounds like a lot to me. But the irony of the whole thing is, is if we're not keeping record, then it really doesn't matter. And if we want to be that much of a legalist, we'd better assume that our accounts, our natural ability uh, would be perfect. Because if we're going to take the lower number of 77, but what imagine? If you're not actually supposed to keep record, how do you know when it's at 77? How sure are you that it's not been 76, but you just assume it's 77 times? In which case now, by your lack of forgiveness, you are going into grievous sin against your brother. And so frankly, it really doesn't matter whether it's 77 or 490, which is Jesus' point. Because if most of you were anything like me, I can't count beyond three anyway. So three and 77, it's irrelevant. It might as well be infinite, which is also Jesus' point. And in the story, he tells of a man who went to the king who had a tremendous debt. We are told that this man's debt that he had accrued was of 10,000 talents. Now, we need to understand, and many of you have heard this before, but bear with Let's just do the math together. 10,000 talents, one talent is the equivalent of 200 years wages. Now let's consider our present day economy. And let's assume this man is an unskilled laborer. Many Bible scholars, even though it's a, for whatever reason that they feel the need to dig into a parable that's not even a true story anyway, but they say this man probably wouldn't have been a tr- an unskilled laborer. He probably was the CFO of the king's stuff who had either been embezzling or mismanaging the king's money. But just for the sake of argument, we'll take the lower level. He's an unskilled laborer, and our present economy would make somewhere between thirty and $40,000 a year. Now. Multiply that by 200, and depending on what you have, you have this debt, man's debt, is somewhere between six billion and eight billion dollars. As incredible of an amount it is today, it was an impossible amount. Nobody, you couldn't get eight billion dollars in debt at this time. And his debt is six to eight billion dollars. Asking for mercy, we're told the king had pity. In other words, the king took into consideration his pitiful circumstances, He had mercy upon him. He forgave the debt. Before we move on, I do need to ask this question because it's very important that we feel this. For those of you who are economically minded, I had the benefit in the first service of Peter McHenry sitting right here in the front. uh, But for those of you who are accountants or just good with math, the king swallowed or the king said, I forgave this debt. What happened to that money? Did it just disappear as if it never existed? The answer is no. The king swallowed. He absorbed that. The effect of forgiving that debt was that now the king was worth either 6 or $8 billion less than he was a day before. And the reason we need to understand this is because it's a reminder to us that forgiveness is costly. Whether it is us or whether it is somebody who seems to have all the resources in the world or even if it is God, the forgiveness God gives to us is costly beyond our ability to understand and to imagine. Now, as you know, this man goes back out, having been forgiven, the weight of $8 billion debt lifted off of his shoulders, and runs into a man who owes him, we are told, 100 denarii. And 100 denarii would be equivalent to about a hundred days wages. So in our present economy, let's just say fifteen thousand dollars. Hardly insignificant. If you want a loan for fifteen thousand, I don't have it. I mean I would feel that if I was to give fifteen thousand dollars. Most of us would. It's not our coffee money. It's a significant amount unless you're comparing it to the eight billion that you just got forgiven. And the point that Jesus is making is we who have been forgiven much should be now free to be able to forgive not just little, but comparatively little. It's still significant. But the reason this whole idea of forgiveness is difficult for us to comprehend is because most of us, I don't know if it's especially those of us who are in the church or not, but most of us don't consider ourselves to be $8 billion in moral debt to God. I mean, that's not the way we think of ourselves, other than when somebody's preaching and you know the story and you say, yes, that's, then we, we acknowledge that. But if somebody was to just ask you, how much debt to God do you think you are? If your sin was calculated, how much do you owe God for your moral bankruptcy? I suspect most of us would put ourselves closer to that $15,000 category because we're pretty good people. Some of us who are more conscientious might even move into the hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt because... We know we're not as good as we think we are. We know that we deserve judgment. There's a great scene in the end of another great revenge movie, and it's called *Unforgiven*, which itself tells you not—it's a, re- a revenge movie. Where well, one of the characters comes up to Will Money, played by Clint Eastwood, and trying to think of all the deaths that had taken place uh, throughout the course of the movie, and said, "Well, I guess they had it coming." To which Clint Eastwood says, "We all got it coming." See, that's a line of somebody who understands we are far worse than most of us tend to think. And so whenever there's an offense against us, we are not conscious of the fact that we're eight billion. We can't comprehend that. We're not, and so we tend to think that we are less. And therefore, it's difficult for us to forgive, but we need to recognize the forgiveness is not only the spiritual dimension, it is the relational dimension, and it's the expression of mercy to the person who has sinned against us, who has now incurred a debt from us. That we swallow the debt because our debt that is so far beyond anything that's done to us has been swallowed by our king in a costly way, the cost of his death and the shedding of his blood that we know but we minimize because we've heard it so frequently. In other words, he paid by his own blood what you lacked in your bank account. Jesus is saying mercy needs to be expressed in both of these dimensions. The best example that I can think of of that comes from a story some of you are familiar with. Uh, It was made into a movie. It was also a book called End of the Spear. It's the further chapters of a story that many of you know about. jim elliott was the most famous of the five young missionaries who had gone to ecuador in order to reach the warreni people who were a isolated violent uh, tribe in that area they went wanted to reach them with the gospel through several contacts they'd made they now realized it was time they could land the plane and come in first contact and the first time they were on the beach in contact with the people Later, they learned that there was a rumor that had been spread, perpetrated by one of the other tribes, that the missionaries actually were come to do them in. When the men got out of the plane, got on the beach, tried to greet them, the tribals took out their spears and killed all five of them. It's a significant debt to the families that lived nearby. They had young kids. Steve Saint, who wrote the book End of the Spear and who becomes featured in that, was the son of another one of them, Nate Saint, whose wife was a remarried and was a member of our home church in, in Knoxville. And so how did the family respond? Three of the wives and Nate Saint's sister moved in next to the, peop- to the tribe and shared their lives and the gospel. And these people who had killed their family received life in Christ. And now as brothers and sisters in Christ, they then began to help them with other aspects of their life, whether it is the, their agrarian practices and the way that they live. Began to look at their pitiful condition and address them and help them to better their circumstances And then End of the Spear looks at it years later and Steve Saint who developed a friendship with the very man who confessed to him that I'm the one who killed your father. And they have a lifelong friendship even now because they know that the brotherhood that they have in Christ is greater than the offense. It's also what Steve Saint's father had given. But it's a beautiful story, beautiful example of the fullness of mercy that we are to demonstrate in all dimensions although perhaps not always having the same opportunity with the same people. But it is a forgiveness of the relational dimension, relational mercy, and it is circumstantial, helping them to be better than what they are. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, before I finish, and I need to do that, and I apologize, believe it or not, have edited, um, I do need to touch on one other thing, particularly on that whole idea blessed are the merciful because they shall receive mercy. Because if you read this, and it would be quite possible for you to read this and look at this and read this and assume, okay, if I want to receive mercy, then I need to become merciful. I mean, that's a reasonable way to read that passage, unless you read it in the context of the Beatitudes as a whole and all of the scriptures. Because the Beatitudes as a whole, that Jesus said, this is to be the characteristics that are cultivated and developed and manifest in the lives of my followers. But it is part of Jesus introducing what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the overarching part of that is God's grace and God's promise. And the promise comes first. And we have already been the recipients of mercy. The benefits only go to those who have been the benefit, received God's grace and he is at work, and these very Beatitudes are expressions of his mercy. We've already been reconciled through faith in what Christ has done. Now Christ is speaking to us and saying, let me teach you a better way. That changes our circumstances. It changes the way that we live with one another. It changes the way that we live in this world. It makes us distinct. And so it is not those who have been merciful enough that receive mercy. It is those who recognize Their poverty of spirit and are beginning to grasp that we have been forgiven an $8 billion debt, if we could quantify, who mourn over a debt that we cannot pay, who hunger and thirst to actually be able to pay and realize it comes only by God's mercy dealing with our circumstances and how He provides for us because everything we have belongs to Him. What Jesus is saying here is we who have been recipients of mercy, we are blessed. And the natural effect is that we now, having understood our condition, express that mercy to those who are around us. We are free because our debts have been entirely wiped out. We are empowered because God has provided everything that we need and everything we have. And he is telling us that we get involved in the two dimensions. Having been set free, not to earn anything, but to bless because we've been blessed, we get involved in forgiving others their offense against us, swallow the debt, which is particularly becoming important in a culture that seems more bent on assuming offense even when there's nothing there to be offensive. Can you see the stark contrast of what it means to be a follower of Christ if we swallow debt when the world around us is increasingly saying, what did you mean by that? Clearly that's offensive. You need to be kicked out of your school. You need to be arrested. Even though those totally benign. All I said was, Happy birthday. Uh, No, uh, you know, and and somehow that's offensive. And second, that we are tangibly getting involved in the lives of other people, hands-on, using whatever talents God has given us to better the lives of the people around us and through the treasures of the giving to enable those who are gifted and more skilled to meet the needs of people around us so that they are enabled to do that with the resources that they need. My prayer for us as a church is that we who have several, a number of people who are wonderfully merciful in every aspect in our community, is that we will grow more of us to catch up with them, that Christ would be at work within us, and that together we would grow and be a church that is known as much for our mercy to our neighbors who are in need as we are for our faithfulness to the scripture, which we continuously strive to maintain and for the history of this church we have. Because the faithfulness to the scripture drives us to be merciful people. And my hope and prayer is that we would see that grow. May God be at work within us to his glory, our joy, and the benefit of anyone who encounters us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you and pray for you to bless us, that we, as we understand mercy, would truly become merciful. To your glory. We pray in Christ. Amen.